Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the writers of papers that interest us and try to learn a little more about the background behind them. Speaking to us today is the Emeritus Professor of Global Englishes at the University of Southampton, Dr. Jennifer Jenkins. Very nice to make your acquaintance, Professor. Nice, nice to make yours. <laughs> the paper we're going to be talking about today is English as a Lingua Franca, Interpretations and Attitudes. And I selected this paper because I find it to be a useful introduction to the field for people who haven't really heard much or thought very much about English as a lingua franca. For our listeners who may not know a lot about this topic, because we're not, we're not a specialist podcast, we try to talk to people from various fields, could you give us a definition of English as a lingua franca? It's a bit tricky to give a definition because the definition has changed over the years as we've understood the phenomenon better. But I guess there's a very basic one. It means um, communication um, among people who have English among the languages they speak, possibly their only language, but usually more than um, one. Uh, and they're using uh, English to communicate with each other and possibly other languages as well. As I say, it's very, very difficult to give a definition now, but English used for communication between people for whom it is not the only language, the only first language present. Sorry, that's rather rather <laughs> convoluted. No, I think I think that does draw in most of the interpretations and the difficulties in the field that I've faced. It's your work is work that I've always come back to because I feel that you're able to succinctly explain uh, to people who might not understand the various nuances of the field, both in your spoken presentations and in your written work. We've recently spoken to Professor uh, Aya Matsuda, and I said that one of the points that drew me to her work was her contention in one of her earlier World Englishes works that World Englishes was not a matter of political correctness, and that this is something that is part of the reality of English being used internationally. I don't know if you're asking me whether I agree with that, but I certainly do. I think English is a lingua franca. I'm going to call it elf from now on because it's much faster and easier to say elf. Um, but one of the things, I mean, I had to reread the article that you um, wanted to focus this uh, interview on because I wrote it. Well, I didn't write it. It was actually a presentation that I gave in October 2007 at the um, International Association of World Englishes Conference that year, which was in Regensburg in Germany. And we had a panel. We were asked, four of us from ELF were asked to speak alongside four people from World Englishes to show, um, they thought, to show the differences between ELF and World Englishes. And what we felt at the time was actually that we were going to show something completely different. We were going to show how similar we were. And all of our papers, including my own, which then I turned two years later into the one that is, is now the written paper that you're focusing on, what we did was look at all the common ground between Elf and World Englishes. And to go back to Aya's um, point, while an awful lot has since changed, as we've discovered much, much more about how English as a lingua franca operates um, among its users, um, one of the original things, the, the point at which I originally started my Elf research was with World Englishes, the ideology, the same ideology. And the ideology was 
very much that this is nothing to do with political correctness. This is an ideology that looks at the way a language is used and doesn't say any particular group of its users are privileged and the only ones who should define how it's used, dictate how it's used, what is correct, what is incorrect, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. So this is not political correctness. This is looking at a language from a sociolinguist's point of view, descriptively, seeing what people do, describing it, um, not starting to um, say that, not not saying that um, what what we've found is political point, but it's a descriptive point. I think I think that's probably enough to say in response to um, Aya, who I Aya Matsuda, who I completely agree with on this. It was a, a point that that drew me in because I find that when I'm trying to discuss with people about this who who don't have any background in it, then the image of it tends to be that Elf or World Englishes, Global Englishes, are somehow deficient because they don't adhere to uh, any particular standard. I was interested to ask you whether you think in your research and in your and in your presentations do you see your role as being as being someone to intervene in situations where you think what's being said is incorrect or do you prefer to observe and then mediate later? Oh, I don't I mean as an academic a researcher I just feel it's my place to do the research and then to disseminate it and let people decide what they want to do with it. I don't see myself as having an interventionist role. I mean, obviously, I I believe in what I do very passionately and I put this out there. And originally it was, um, you know, I seem to be permanently under attack from many, many people Ironically, as I said in this 2009 article, not just the ELT professionals, but the World Englishes people who thought I was trying to impose some kind of new standard on, on the world, which was absolutely not the case. And at the other extreme, it was ELT professionals who argued that I was trying to give up all sense of any standards. I, I felt at the time that, uh, that they, you know, they couldn't both be right, and they sort of cancelled each other out, and um, that was that. That gave me a lot of um, confidence that I was get actually getting it right. Well, that's what you point out in the paper that the two different stances on uh, Elf kind of are in opposition to each other. So that on the one side, the people in World Englishes argue that Elf would be a monolithic, a monomodel where people would be giving up their own cultural identity, and on the other side that Elf didn't have any standards, and so how could you teach it? Where do you think that the field has progressed to? Do you feel that these arguments have been defeated, and what new arguments have appeared in the last 10 years? Oh, I'm, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's been defeated. I mean, when I started, this was, I mean, actually, this goes back to the political point. When I started doing this, I was an EFL teacher myself, as it used to be called, ELT, in the 1980s until around 1990. And it was because of what I saw um, among my speakers in the classroom, the students from many different first languages, saw how they were using English. That was what first drew me to this phenomenon, uh, which I then proceeded to research and describe. I would say that, I mean, it was it was sort of seen as revolutionary in a bad way at the time when I published the first 
the first, particularly the first book on it in 2000, on the pronunciation. I didn't even dare to call it ELF at the time. I called it English as an international language because, I mean, the, the word, the, the term ELF was, was seen as so derogatory, but it certainly may, it certainly moved on among the ELT profession since then. Um, in that um, even the um, Cambridge exams now um, and others, Trinity and various others, are now engaging with it. And, you know, it even seems to be on um, syllabuses in teacher education, teacher training. But I have to say that I am not in teacher education myself. I have very limited contact with teachers. I'm, I work much more with other researchers. So I wouldn't too too be able to make too many claims about what what people feel about it now, how they think about health. My own research um, has shown that there's been a massive change. I mean, even since I did interviews for a book, the book I published in 2007, um, around the time I gave the talk on which this article, this 2009 article is based, I, I did interviews for that book. And although people were very concerned about their own identity when they used English, when I asked them the question about how would you, you most like your English to sound like, they always, or almost always said a native English speaker. I mean, they didn't have a particular speaker in mind, but they wanted it to sound like a native speaker. When I did interviews just a few years later, admittedly with university postgraduate students, but generally mostly younger because the, the EFL teachers I spoke to or LELT teachers I spoke to for the first project for, or for the 2007 project, they were generally older. But the students I spoke to, mostly in around 2012, 2013, the book was published in 2014. It was a book on English as a lingua franca in um, the International University. I think it, I can't remember the exact title, but they with two exceptions, wanted, uh, thought it was outrageous that they should have to use native-like English and be penalised for not using it. So it seemed there had been a change. I don't know how much the um, elf literature had influenced them because some of them, I had to explain it to them. Some of them knew nothing about it. They were from, I don't know, engineering, chemistry, physics, uh, social sciences. They weren't from linguistics, except for a very small number. So they probably didn't know anything about it. But certainly it seemed that the, the general view of how English should be in the world seemed to have been changing as more and more people seemed to be using it. I would agree that as use of the language as a mutual foreign language between speech communities in, for example, as you say, in professions like engineering, in the law, in medicine, when you have conversations going on between people in the same field, but they are, they don't have the same first language, but English facilitates that communication. I think that might draw their attention away from the so-called native speaker standard and more towards their ability to complete the communication that would serve them best. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I always said around that time that two things needed to happen. Firstly, people needed to actually learn about ELF. They needed to know about this phenomenon. They needed to know a little bit about the research findings. So they needed to know that it existed as a phenomenon and it wasn't just bad English. You know, it wasn't foreigners' bad English. And secondly, they needed to have the actual experience 
of using English in multilingual settings and to find out because one of the things that they always said was that they they talk together maybe somebody from with Hungarian somebody with Italian somebody with Japanese they would chat together and they would understand each other perfectly and clear it up very quickly if they had a problem in understanding until a native English speaker joined in and when a native English speaker joined in they couldn't understand the native English speaker uh, and nor could often the native English speaker understand them so they were very quickly, once they were in that environment, that multilingual English using environment, they were very quickly from their own personal experience um, understanding what else was in practice and realizing that actually it was fine. It, 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 you know, the, the, the only thing that wasn't fine was, was very often the native English speaker. I saw in an interview that you had last year uh, you noted that British users of English are very monolingual and have kind of resistance to learning other languages, and therefore it almost is a resistance to learning about their own language, how they might negotiate their own performance when they're in a situation where they should be the one that's privileged with the skill, but because they don't adapt to the people they're talking to, they become the problem, not the, uh, not the solution. Oh, yes, very much. I mean, one of the things I think you learn um, when you learn other languages is you learn about accommodation. You learn about the need to um, adjust the way you speak for the benefit of the people or person you're speaking to. And one of the problems with so many monolingual um, English speakers is that they they don't understand. It's not necessarily, I mean, it may not usually be that they don't want to be understood. They don't want to make it easy for the other person. They just don't know what to do unless they do speak other languages. And then they seem, you know, seem to have a better, better sense of how to do it. I mean, there's, there's a caricature of the um, English person abroad. And when expects everybody, you know, in Rome or wherever to speak, or Tokyo or wherever to speak English and, um, when the person doesn't understand what they've just said to them very fast in English, they just say it equally fast but louder, so they shout. Um, <laughs> and uh, this is the problem. It's it's just the lack of um, understanding of you know how we all need to adjust. I mean, sometimes you know it, it it's not necessarily speaking slower because you know when you get people who maybe speak three or four other languages they're not they're not a native english speaker they they have another language as their first but they speak probably other languages and they speak them often you know very you know very very well they in the sense that they can be understood and understand very easily when i say well i don't mean they speak it like a native um use exactly a native version of it the monolingual native version of it but they're very good. They're very good at adjusting, at accommodating. But they can do this in a way that if you're a monolingual English speaker, you just don't know what to do. And I mean, there are those that simply expect everybody when it's English, they expect, you know, it's our language. People should speak it like us. But the problem is that people don't understand that there's a difference between English as a native language and English as a lingua franca. And when it's a lingua franca, the only reason it's a lingua franca is because lots of people from other languages are using it. If that wasn't so, then it wouldn't be a lingua franca. It would only be a native language. And 
once it becomes a lingua franca and other people are using it, they have the rights to use it as they want to, as it's best for them. And best for them is often not what a native English speaker does. And this is, this is, I think, the essential problem for the natives. Yeah, I would agree with you. And it's, um, never having the experience of hearing English spoken in a context other than your own hometown or in your own home country that you don't realize that the great variety that can come from it being, uh, as you know, in your work, becoming, becoming localized and therefore not realizing that your own form of English, whether you speak it in Southampton, in my hometown of Sheffield, or as you say, in Tokyo or elsewhere around the world, it is a local, it's local to that area. So you have to become conversant in the abilities of negotiation and, as you say, accommodation. Actually, I'd like to pick you up on the local. Okay. Um, <laughs> because um, the thing about L is that it's not local. Um, it doesn't depend where you are. It depends who you're talking with. And this is one of the things where where the research moved on as the data came in, the empirical data came in. And this is one of the things that's wrong with my 2009 article. At that time, we really did think that it was very like World Englishes. And one of the things we did in that panel was try to, um, in, in 2007, was to try to um, demonstrate how it was, you know, there would be say, Japanese English, German English, Korean English, and so on. What we realized afterwards is that this is this is really not the case. You can't talk about the varieties. It, although um, it does depend to an extent, uh, the way people use English obviously depends to an extent on what their first language is. And the way they use English, um, which Anna Maurin, and another very well-known elf researcher, subsequently conceptualized as their similect. Your similect is the way you speak um, English according to the first language you learned. It has influence on it, but it has only a certain amount of influence. With some people, they have, for example, a very, very strong accent, so strong that you would almost think they were speaking, for example, French, unless you got close and heard their words were English. It can be so little that it's very hard to tell what their first language was. But that's not elf. That's only um, the, what they learnt in the classroom. As soon as they move out and start mixing with people from other first languages, uh, what Anna Maranen calls second-order contact, they are um, not. Uh, their English changes. It doesn't change in a sort of way that makes it a new variety. It just changes for that communication. They adjust. This is what accommodation is all about. They adjust in that communication uh, according to the way the other people they're speaking with are using English. And when their elf develops and moves, you know, changes over time, it's because of the different communications they're having, not with people from their first language, uh, but with people who have other first languages. Because if they were only communicating with people from their first language, they would just speak that first language. They wouldn't be bothering to use English. It's when they're mixing with other people. And that's when we realized that actually you can't possibly talk about a variety of English like Japanese English or German English or whatever, because it's never fixed. It changes all the time. And one of the key features about ELF is that it is very, very variable. It can't be pinned down to a locality, to a particular speaker, although they have the influence of the first language, the much more important influence is what's happening um, in the communication with 
in the multilingual communication. So that was how it moved on. Very soon after, we gave that panel in 2007. And it was a bit unfortunate that I then had to write this article, uh, which I would no longer, by the time it was published in 2009, I no longer believed that we could talk about varieties, um, expanding circle, you know, in English, in the areas where that were never colonized uh, by the British. We could no longer talk about those as varieties. I no longer thought that, but that was in the article because it was based on what was said in 2007. So um, that's that's how it changed around the sort of late noughties, sort of 2008, 2009, 2010. Exactly. And I, I, I take your point on that and how uh, the there has been a progression uh, more towards understanding that uh, ELF is not so much the form of the language, but the, how it functions in that particular context and how it can change so dramatically, even from the performance of an individual person, depending on, as you say, who they're talking to, where they're speaking, and why they're speaking. These are the questions that are more important than the words or the, the grammars or the pronunciation that they're using. Absolutely. And that's why you could never describe it. I mean, I think I talked about possibly even codifying elf in that language. Well, there are certain things that we we found and we still believe that elf users, especially the, the non-native English elf users, all, tend to all do, not all the time, but some of the time, um, things like um, um, using certain nouns that are uncountable in native English as countable um, informations, advices, and so on, or not using the third person S in the present simple tense. But what's, what they're doing is, um, in the, these examples, they're simply accelerating what is actually happening in the native language, but they're in the, the sense that English may be predisposed to move, to regularize in certain ways, and they're regularizing it just faster than the natives would like them to do. But then, of course, there's also the influence of the first languages and their use of, and their first languages um, when they come into contact with each other, this second order contact. So the influence of the second language is in their English and they are influencing it the way English is is, is used and, and over time changing. I think we're, we're both uh, in full agreement here. So it might be interesting to move the conversation on to something that I don't know if, if I would agree, but I would like to hear much more about your opinions on. I mentioned in an email to you about alternative papers that we could discuss, and that oftentimes when I'm giving a presentation on the topic of English as a lingua franca, I can guess who in the audience is going to raise their hand at the end and ask the question, but what about testing? How do we test this? <laughs> this is all right in theory, and I get that this happens in contact interactions, but how do we test it in a way that's fair to everybody? And then the discussion comes back to the big standardized language testing companies, ETS, IELTS, Cambridge. What are your thoughts on how we could possibly include ELF as a way to equal the playing field when it comes to standardized testing? Well, first of all, I'm going to have to say something about how ELF has moved on since around 2010, how the research has moved on, because this is very important in the testing 
uh, discussion, what we started to realize was that we simply were ignoring the, the very reason for ELF existing, which is the lang other languages that people speak. And um, from around 2015, and I put my hand up and say I wrote the, the first paper on, on this, but uh, the idea of English being a multilingua franca, um, that people all, all have English in their linguistic repertoire, but they may not always use it. They switch in and out of other languages. And this is a feature, a very strong feature uh, that, you know, research has shown. Uh, when you get um, people using ELF together, apart from these monolingual native English speakers, people often switch in and out of languages that they share uh, with each other. Uh, if, for example, you get a group of um, Europeans, or not necessarily Europeans, but often Europeans, who all have Spanish in common, even though only one of them is a native speaker of Spanish, but they all have English and other languages. Or even sometimes they don't share, but they use something from their own language and then explain it to everybody else. And we've got plenty of examples of that in the data. So what has happened in the last five years is that multilingualism has become very much more um, to the front, much more important in ELF, how we understand it. To go to testing, there's been a lot of discussion of, about this, and I've published a series of articles on the role of ELF in um, testing with my colleague from King's College London, where I worked before I went to Southampton, Professor Constant Lung. And it, it is a very difficult subject, but I think when it, if we want to look at the essential areas that need testing. Uh, we, we have to stop testing against native English. I'm not saying this for testing every language. I'll leave other pe speakers, people who test other languages to speak for themselves. But for English, I think if we're testing English for people who are going to use it as a lingua franca, which is basically almost every non-native learner of English, um, I think um, that we have to stop testing it against native English because they're not going to use it mainly with native English speakers. And if they do, those, those speakers will be a minority. We have to look at how they use it, how they need to use it with other non-native speakers. So one of the key things that needs to be tested is their ability to accommodate. How good are they at adjusting their, their English when they are with other people? So that would be, be my number one consideration that they need to be testing how they can use it in intercultural communication rather than testing how they use it in a native English um, environment. Uh, can, I, can I just are you holding something because there's like a scratching coming through on the we have the cat now. Oh, okay, that's right. <laughs> okay, so it's the I cat. I have a cat who you might also hear meowing. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. This is something that, having had the question so many times at conferences, I worked with uh, a colleague of mine to try and put together a kind of step-by-step -step guide of, of where these various intersecting fields of, uh, of sociolinguistic kind of fit together, and then how we might create a test that fit this idea. So. What you talk about accommodation and others such as uh, Professor Kanagaraja talk about as negotiation of performance. We put world Englishes upon the surface and wherever they appeared in their, in their context. But as soon as you leave the surface of, uh, you leave that context, you're moving into global Englishes, English is an international language. And the more proficient you become in your performance and your ability to negotiate and to accommodate, you 
move towards lingua franca English, and uh, English is a lingua franca. So we thought something like a, a test that required students to complete a task with artificial constraints, where the person that they were talking to, they wouldn't be able to answer the question directly. They would have to circumlocute, they would have to paraphrase, summarize what the person was saying, attempting to find common ground to uh, achieve a linguistic goal. Would, would that kind of test fit your criteria for an ELF English test? I mean, that sounds good to me. I mean, I have to be honest, I have only, I mean, Constant Lung and I have only worked on English in academic, you know, English for um, university at university level. So we've looked a lot at um, entry testing right. and how to assess people within a university setting uh, rather than a general ELF. I mean, what you've suggested, I would say, sounds very good. I just haven't done any work on that myself. Uh, but for, for university, for IELTS, I mean, we've, we've launched strong attacks on IELTS and on the CEFR, the Cambridge Europe. Oh, golly, what is it? What does CEFR stand for? Uh, the Common Frame uh, European Common Framework. European Framework of Reference, which is not European at all now. It's used all around the world. <laughs> well, um, well, we have our, our version <laughs> in Japan called the Safa J. So yeah, I know, yeah, I know yeah, yeah, and and various other Asian and African and Latin American countries too. Um, but for entry testing, we have said that IELTS should be a, pretty much abandoned, or at least complete. That we've proposed self-assessment, and um, that that the self-assessment tasks are um, designed by the department where a student wants to go. And the student then works through these, you know, which all involve doing the sort of thing that they would do in that setting in the, if they were in that department and deciding whether they feel that they're ready to study there, deciding together with a member of staff in that department. And they decide whether they think that um, they could do this, um, because which we said would would eradicate cheating and I gather a lot of cheating happens with IELTS because people if they knew they couldn't do it wouldn't want to spend an enormous amount on the fees to go there knowing that they can't do it but it would also be a very productive way of of studying because uh, it would actually they would be studying as well as being tested because they would be looking at typical materials say seminars reading texts trying to write a bit um, whatever sort of activities were done, lab work, whatever, whatever is done in that department. Um, and it would actually, they would learn from it. When they learn to pass IELTS, they basically, they go on some type of course where they just have a indoctrinated with native English for a few weeks. And then they say that afterwards, whatever their score, it was a complete waste of time because when they got to the department, even in the UK, and actually probably especially in the UK, the majority of people there, including many of their tutors, were not native English speakers. Nobody used English like that. And they were using English as a lingua franca, socially and academically. So, you know, we proposed um, a self-assessment route for certainly for university level health. In the interest of full disclosure, I am actually an IELTS speaking assessor, but I take, <laughs> I take, I take all of your criticisms and I, I understand exactly what you're talking about when it relates to the actual materials that they're going to be listening to and the tasks that they're going to be asked to do. And while you were speaking, I was thinking what 
a kind of an unfortunate opportunity this movement to online classes has been because so many professors are now being required to put a lot of the material that would normally only exist in a classroom that would never be seen by a potential student. It's going online, it's going on YouTube, it's going onto various university websites that could form the basis of materials for entrance tests, uh, as you suggest. Yes, in fact, interestingly, um, I, I can't say who it is, but a, a college in London University has actually asked Constance and me to, um, to, to meet with them to discuss how they might, um, do their assessment online now that it's actually, they've actually had to put everything online because of the, um, coronavirus. And yes, I think that, I think there's, there are going to be very interesting developments in relation to ELF in education, particularly higher education, as a result of everything going online. Um, it's in my university, it's in King's College London, where I have a lot of colleagues still, and in the place where we're doing the research. And my guess as well is that after coronavirus, whenever that is, because I don't know that that's any time soon, a lot of students will now want to learn distance rather than travel to another country. And therefore, online is going to be here with us pretty much for, for well, for many decades, probably. <laughs> Things that are being learned and learned very quickly by many of my colleagues over the last three or four months, I think, is going to inform their teaching, as you say, going forwards and uh, how they're going to want to assess their students' performance. It's coming up against various constraints, just the ability to do things online that you can't think about doing in the classroom, but it is opening up other avenues of how you might assess students' performance and also increase the amount of communication between students in the classes. Yes, I mean, a lot of people seem to be having classes on Zoom at the moment. I know that some universities don't like it, but an awful lot of colleagues I have are getting people together on Zoom and, and having um, a lot of communication, and, and it's very multilingual use of English in a UK university. I don't, I'm not quite so sure how this would be in countries where there are not so many international students in classes. But I guess that, that the, the possibility then is, is uh, something that I had recommended years and years ago um, in very early phase of ELF was that people should, you know, and then I was talking about general English class, ELF um, or EFL classrooms, uh, as they were then, that people should try to set up video conferencing with um, classes in other countries so that students would get the opportunity to speak English with people from different first languages so that if they were, say, a classroom in Tokyo, um, all Japanese students learning English could speak with a school in somewhere in Europe, for example, maybe Spain, speak with Spanish or maybe in um, another part of maybe Korea or somewhere, they could make contact with classes in other countries and get the multilingual um, communication that maybe they couldn't get in their own classes because in that country they are all from the same language in the classes, and including in higher education, though less so, I think, now than, than then in higher education. But certainly I think that this will make it much more possible to happen. To bring the interview to a close, I don't want to keep you away from the good weather for too long. Kind of a, a personal story of mine is that for my external examiner when I was doing my PhD from the University of Sheffield, my supervisor was going to recommend you as being the external examiner. This was about 10 years ago. <laughs> and I was petrified because I thought, 
Well, this is someone that I I completely agree with, but if that's the case, then she's probably going to see all the holes in my argument. I was unlucky not to meet you at that time, but I was very lucky to be uh, assessed by Elizabeth Erling, who is someone else who's done work on world Englishes in, in, in Germany. But on the topic of postgraduate uh, study, what I'd like to finish my interviews with is asking for advice for people who are thinking to get into this field for an advanced degree. Uh, where do you think people should be looking? What are the areas that people looking to follow a, a master's degree or a PhD in this area, where do you think they should be investigating and putting their energies? For a PhD, I mean, I, I was asked this same question uh, back in February when we had a seminar in Southampton, a research seminar on how ELF is moving on. And I said to them, I think the two areas that I, if I was about to think about a PhD in ELF, the two areas I would want to take choose one of would be either looking at the role of multilingualism in health, which I think is still very under-researched, or um, testing, because we've had, we've got all the ideas, or we have a number of ideas about testing, but I don't think there's been very much research so far on it. So I would look at the whole language assessment thing. I think that there is a view now. I went to a weekend's um, seminar, a workshop uh, run by the CEFR back in February um, in London. And I think they are very open now to a certain amount of criticism of even the 2018, the second volume of the um, work. I think they do understand now and people got up one after another to say similar things, that, that things do have to change. We have a changed world. We can't just carry on looking at, even though they've taken native out of the descriptors, the descriptors still do imply native. Uh, it has to move away from that. And I think they do understand that now. So I would be looking at how testing can move away from, from native. And of course, that is very linked to multilingualism. Thank you very much for, for that. It's uh, a research project that I'm just starting is looking into how to use international students on campus, at, at our campus, as a resource for students to learn how international English operates. And part of that project is tasked with looking at testing as well. So I'll uh, certainly keep that in mind. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor, and I wish you the best of luck in your future works. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to contact the show, then you can do so at lostincitations at gmail.com. You can also like and rate and leave a comment at the places where you download your podcast from. We also have pages on Facebook and LinkedIn. But the most important way would be, if you do like the show, recommend it to a friend, a colleague, and see if they like the content that we're putting up online. Thank you very much.